Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Let's bring Ariel Cohen back in here, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. What stuck out to you? First of all, uh, this was a very strong message against uh, what uh, I would call the globalists. Uh, this is the world of a mosaic of independent nations. I think uh, Steve Bannon would have been proud of this speech. Um, the president uh, is strengthening the sovereignty uh, against uh, global government. Uh, he says, the United States does not recognize the International Criminal Court. We will not join the um, international, uh, the UN Compact on Refugees, etc. He is not against cooperating with the United Nations. He just wants America to do it on our own terms. Ariel, other topics include OPEC and oil prices, as well as China and trade negotiations. I wonder if you could comment on the relationship that the president is setting out between the United States and OPEC as a organization that he describes as controlling oil prices. Absolutely. Uh, I had the privilege to testify before the U.S. Congress on the legislation called NOPEC, uh, no OPEC. Uh, and this is something that is encouraged by the White House. Uh, apparently, the president used uh, OPEC uh, for what it is, the cartel, that by opening or closing the spigot uh, can regulate the prices. And OPEC is now expanding. Russia and Saudi Arabia are working closely together. And this was interesting because he mentioned um, the Russian pipeline that uh, goes into uh, Germany, the natural gas pipeline. Right. But he did not mention Russia. He uh, contrasted Russia, what was going on in Germany and their energy policy with the energy policy that exists in Poland. He spoke about how OPEC is ripping off the rest of the world. Well, let's d distinguish between gas and oil. Uh, Russia is cooperating with OPEC and Saudi Arabia uh, on oil. And it was interesting that he mentioned Saudi Arabia among very few U.S. allies. He mentioned India. He mentioned Israel. No surprises here. He mentioned Poland which is important in the election with the you know, ethnic uh, Polish-American vote, but he did mention Saudi Arabia as an ally at the same time, bashing OPEC, and Saudi, of course, is a founding member yeah. and the market maker in OPEC. So that, there was a dichotomy uh, and a paradox right there. Um, I think he will uh, push OPEC not to um, diminish uh, yeah. oil production. He wants oil prices lower than they are now. So, Ariel, I, I want to go back to something that you said initially, that, uh, that, that Steve Bannon would be proud of this speech and that it was rejection of globalism. And I'm just wondering if you can sort of put historic perspective on UN uh, Assembly addresses by presidents. How instructive have they been about policies and how, sort of how seminal are they in signaling a sort of complete sea change uh, in, in, in policies versus just sort of... Uh, pomp and circumstance? Um, I think that uh, in this speech in particular, we see the strongest language possible about Iran. 
the president uh, is hoping that on the 4th of November, when the uh, sanctions on Iran kick in, the, the second round of sanctions, uh, and Iran is driven to lose its oil exporting uh, opportunities, um, we will uh, move towards uh, possibly, I think they're not saying that, but they're thinking about it, regime change in Iran, because that regime will have um, will run out of money, and uh, people are already sending a very strong signal to uh, Tehran that they do not want to continue like that. Uh, so that's the main uh, message. Yeah. Um, in terms of other things, the tariff war with China, I think this was very important, uh, again, in the context of the elections, uh, to the president's um, core uh, voter base. Uh, he's saying, you lost jobs, uh, steel industry lost one quarter of its jobs, uh, U.S. lost 60,000 factors. So this is a core um, voter base message yeah. uh, to the American voters. Thank you so much for being with us. Ariel Cohen, we really appreciate your insights. Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, uh, joining us following the speech that President Trump delivered at the U.N. General Council. We're broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host Lisa Abramowitz. Our topic now is emerging markets. Our guest, Phil Torres, global co-head of emerging markets at Aegon Asset Management. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Phil Torres, thank you very much for coming in. Argentina's peso taking a tumble this coming after the president of the country's central bank, Luis Caputo, resigned. They have tapped a economist for a replacement why would you still be bullish if indeed you are on argentina great to be here with you um it's obviously breaking news we're trying to figure out exactly what the implications are at the moment but markets seem to be taking in stride at least on the external credit uh and the in the currency again still trying to figure out exactly the implications and uh and the policy changes that, that might come back so when you're investing, Phil, in this market, Argentina, Brazil, uh, how do you factor in the liquidity issues? Because this morning, right after the announcement came out about the Argentinian central bank head, there was zero trading in the local right. Argentinian peso market. That's yep. concerning. It's an illiquid market in general. So this is something we think is generally factored into the prices. So as investors that take medium to long term, we can absorb some of the liquidity in, in some of these markets. But we try to look through a lot of the, uh, the ups and downs, and this was, this was a steep drop that, uh, that the markets reacted. Just to go back to what you talked about with Argentina, are you really looking for the International Monetary Fund to come in with some extra money, and then that will help everybody's investment thesis? No, I think what we're really looking for is policy change and, and a continuation of, uh, of good ideas. And if they can deliver on uh, primarily... Uh, getting to a balanced budget uh, in the next year, we think that goes a long way to securing the investment thesis of most people that like this market. So I want to talk about what you're buying currently. What was the most recent sort of position that you took with conviction in emerging markets? So I'll just rattle off a couple of our of our favorite trades um, in, let's say, the last month. Um, we've liked Senegal. We've liked Ivory Coast. Turkey, Argentina have been some some favorites. Those those have been allocated. You've been capital. buying Turkey it, over the summer. That was uh, that was one of our our more interesting favorite trades. Yeah. 
Interesting. I just have to wonder, as a, a company that oversees more than $100 billion of assets and you have a lot of money to deploy, how much can you really go into a place like Senegal or some of the countries with less debt or less, you know, sort of smaller markets, considering that you'll be a dominant player potentially? Well, first, $100 billion is not our total allocation to emerging markets. So we're not trying to deploy all of that. But some of these markets have some reasonable liquidity we can put we can put money to work fairly easily just looking at for example one of the senegal government bonds they are down about six and a quarter percent since the beginning of the year are you buying these things for yield or for capital appreciation capital appreciation although yield is going to be a big part of it um so we got involved in senegal sometime late summer after a lot of that uh, after a lot of that decline they had issued some new debt, uh, the market didn't receive that terribly well um, as a mix of adding new debt stock and it was just an unfavorable time for markets in general. Primarily what we thought was it's a value situation. Good economy, stable, kind of a model democracy and it got cheap. So I have to wonder, it sounds like you're taking risk and you're somewhat optimistic about emerging markets generally. How does the Fed play into this, especially as they prepare to raise rates possibly tomorrow? Yeah, the the Fed historically, at least our our view on how emerging markets have reacted to Fed hiking cycle, if it's matched with growth, then the emerging markets can typically uh, do pretty well, if not sideways, which with high yield is is just a fine market. Um, to the extent that the Fed is hiking um, to uh, to cut growth, right, to put it into a recessionary environment. Um, because they're concerned about inflation, then that's bad. Um, we think we're in the former environment and, uh, and maintain a reasonably optimistic view on most of these markets. Really interesting. Phil Torres, thank you so much for being with us. Phil Torres is Global Co-Head of Emerging Markets and Director of Emerging Markets Research at Aegon USA Asset Management with $100 billion under management, $300 billion under management worldwide at the, at the global firm. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. Earlier today, President Donald Trump, speaking before the UN General Assembly, said that China is taking advantage of the U.S. on trade. Here to tell us more about how companies are responding to the situation is Richard Chambers. He is the president and the chief executive of the Institute of Internal Auditors. They're based in Altamont Springs, Florida. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Richard Chambers, thank you very much for being here. You've written that U.S. corporations may have a, a false sense of security regarding the effects of trade uh, confrontation between the United States and China. Explain why you believe that to be so. Well, you know, as we've and first of all, thank you for having me uh, today. It's it's great to be here. Uh, as we so often uh, comment, when these uh, risks start to emerge, uh, there's a there's sort of an initial sense of of denial. That is, oh, this can't possibly get that bad, and it's not going to create problems for us. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes that ends up happening. Uh, so as we've been surveying uh, the heads of internal audit and publicly traded companies and, and other organizations, we're sort of seeing some of that initial sense of denial, like, oh, well, this is not going to really have a significant impact on our company, so we're not going to worry too much about it. And, and that's the problem uh, a lot of times is that you see the storm approaching, but you don't respond until the winds are picking up. 
What gives you confidence that the storm is picking up in a way that companies are not recognizing? Well, I think uh, there have been plenty of um, there's been plenty of uh, articles and uh, and other publications in the past week that have pointed out uh, that particularly in consumer products and retail, uh, the 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 impact of the tariffs on all the products that are going to be imported are going to uh, have an impact in terms of the cost of the products. Uh, will likely impact uh, demand. Uh, as refrigerators get more expensive or dishwashers get more expensive, that's going to have an impact on the demand. So particularly in industries like retail and consumer products, uh, there's certainly plenty of evidence that this is going to have an impact. And you're not seeing that reflected by the CEOs or well, the corporate well, leadership. Right. Yeah, yeah. What we're seeing at this point is, uh, you know, when we ask chief uh, audit executives, heads of internal audit, is this a, a significant risk for your company? We're still giving an overwhelming response. No, we don't see this as a significant risk at this point. Now, when, when we ask, uh, wh what does your company think the risk to the overall economy would be? Uh, almost 60% of them responded uh, to a survey last week that uh, their companies think there would be a significant risk to the overall economy. But it seems to be one of those, yeah, but it's not going to affect me uh, kind of denials, I think. Do they understand that there's a contradiction in trying to hold those two positions, or do you believe that perhaps for competitive reasons they're just not willing to disclose to you how worried or concerned or prepared they are? I, I think it may be. Uh, I think it may be the former uh, because we see this. Uh, I think one of the last times I, I visited with you guys, we talked about uh, the Me Too movement and how slow companies were to recognize the risk that that presents. I see a common thread here in that when risks begin to emerge, uh, there, there's sort of a reluctance to look at what is the downstream impact of this risk. So if, if in fact, the tariffs are implemented uh, to the extent that it appears they are going to be, what will come next and then what could happen after that? And oh, by the way, how could that impact our company, our workforce, our investment? Um, and that's what I think uh, happens all too often, uh, is that when it comes to risk management, there's a slow reluctance to accept uh, that a risk may be very, very detrimental. I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, we were talking yesterday with a Harvard professor who said that the current market resembles something of a bubble in terms of sentiment anyway. That is when accounting shenanigans are more likely to happen when capital is flowing freely. To what degree are you concerned that that is currently going on, where perhaps when sort of the tide rolls back and credit isn't as free flowing, we could see some serious problems? Well, we've seen uh, in the past when uh, the economy started to show signs of some sort of upheaval uh, that there is a lot of pressure and uh, analyst expectations are put out there. Companies have to meet those analyst expectations or they get punished in the market. That's when we see the risks start to rise uh, of uh, perhaps fraudulent financial reporting. I think since the last major round of scandals where fraudulent financial reporting was at the root uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, we have a lot more um, regulation and control in place uh, but I still wouldn't say that, uh, I still wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility. And so once again, when likelihood starts to go up, that's one of the components of risk assessment, that's when you need to start getting concerned. Are you at all concerned about the tone that is reflected by the behavior of people in Congress? And I'm talking about the House of Representatives as well as senators and even those uh, people in the government and the way that they relate to each other and using those as examples? 
You know, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I posted a blog last week about civility in the boardroom. Uh, it seems to be the only place, perhaps, where there's still a lot of civility, maybe too much, and that board members don't challenge each other. But the point I made is that we're living in a society today where civility seems to be uh, held in much less high regard, if 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 you can. Um, and so I do think, and I spent quite a bit of time in Washington during my days as a federal employee. I do think that the tone in Washington uh, has definitely deteriorated in the last few years. And and that comes from all sides. I don't think that any uh, one party or any one group is to blame. Uh, I think that's part of the challenge that we face in society. Just real quick, when you talk to auditors who are going around and checking out corporations, is there anything that you've been hearing from them that we haven't discussed that surprised you? Um, it, it, the, as in I, terms of like reviewing companies and sort of their position and whether they're stronger than they seem or weaker than they seem or no, I don't think that I've I've uh, I've gotten any indication from the internal auditors that uh, there's a lot of miss there. I do think that the internal auditors sometimes are uh, they they get caught up in the culture of their organization maybe and they're a little slower to recognize emerging risk and it's one of the things that we're always coaching them is that they have to be able to detect the thunder before the storm uh, because if they don't uh, then once once the real risks emerge it's going to be well where were the internal auditors and it's very very important that they get out in front of these risks. Richard Chambers, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Richard Chambers is President and Chief Executive of the Institute of Internal Auditors. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Studios here at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York City. Facebook, what is going on there? Down three quarters of 1% today after Instagram's founders left the firm, citing disagreements with Facebook's leader. Joining us now, Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things tech. Shira, how bad is this for Facebook? Because frankly, actually, stock traders are taking it relatively in stride, considering that Instagram really is a profit engine or potential one for Facebook. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised at the relatively modest stock decline, to be honest. the Look, the truth is, it's going to be hard to know how big a deal this really is because it's going to be measured in what doesn't Instagram do or what opportunities does Instagram miss if it's distracted for a while by this leadership vacuum or if, in fact, it loses some of its um, kind of essential essence of Instagramness. Well, Shiro, what exactly is the problem with the two founders leaving? They've been there for six years what do they do on a day-to-day basis that someone else can't do? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, look, it, it's not uncommon, right, for a, a company to acquire another company and then for the CEOs or the founders of those acquired companies to eventually leave. Um, so I don't want to say this is some kind of, you know, criminal matter or anything like that. But um, it's true that both Instagram founders were had leadership positions inside of Instagram they had set up Instagram as this kind of semi-autonomous unit inside of Facebook, which I think was important to the product independence of Instagram. Um, and, you know, they had leadership roles in shepherding Instagram through this kind of important period of growth for the company. So, yeah, there are plenty of executives at Facebook who can fill the void, but I don't want to downplay the importance of, of Kevin Sistrom and Mike Krieger, the, the two founders who, uh, at least until 
now um, had important leadership roles at Instagram as well. Pim, is your daughter on Facebook? No. Is your daughter on Instagram? No. Oh, you're, you're strike two. Strike two. But yeah. that, that means that you're a better parent than I. I, I found know. out the other night that my son had signed up for Instagram. Who He's nine um, and he is not signed up for Facebook, um, but he was out there liking photographs and, and having followers, et cetera. Very alarming. A whole host of other issues. But Shira, it is notable to me that he signs up for Instagram and that's where that's where the action's at. Can you give us a sense of just how much faster it's growing and how much more dominant it's becoming as far as a revenue driver than Facebook's really uh, eponymous platform? Yeah. Well, we don't exactly know how fast it's growing because Facebook keeps that data um, uh, private, but it's certainly growing much faster uh, than the main Facebook social network app, uh, which you know, has more than 2 billion users every month. So is, there is a limit to growth when you have, you know, a significant chunk of the world's population already using Facebook. But it's clear that Instagram is an important growth trajectory, both in terms of users. Um, we see in North America the number of daily users on Facebook main. Facebook has flatlined recently, and um, that's a dangerous development for Facebook, uh, North America is not where the majority of users are, but it is where the majority of ad revenue is. And that's important for Facebook. And we've also seen that as um, Facebook has some user growth issues, Facebook has dialed up the number of advertisements on Instagram and pointed a lot of advertisers to the migration of users to Instagram and their embrace of this relative, still relatively novel format that's popular on Instagram called Stories, which is this um, kind of ephemeral diaries um, composed of videos, short videos, and photos. So Facebook is enormously important to the growth strategy at Facebook, and losing these founders is not great for what's been the most important growth asset at Facebook. Okay, well, ju just to set the record, right? I mean, uh, the two founders sold uh, Instagram to Facebook six years ago. Facebook paid $715 million. At the time, the company had 13 employees and 30 million registered users. Now they got a billion people using Instagram each yeah. month. And Bloomberg Intelligence Analysis said that Instagram is worth more than a hundred billion dollars. So it's not the same company they sold to Facebook anymore. It's definitely not the same company. And, and look, um, both sides, both Facebook and the Instagram founders deserve credit for that huge jump in, in, in assumed valuation for Instagram. There's no way, well, I can't say that for sure. It would have been hard, I think, for Instagram to become such a valuable company outside of Facebook's corporate umbrella. Uh, but at the same time, it, it wasn't like Facebook gets 100% credit for the growing usage and valuation of Instagram under its auspices. Well done. Thank you very much. Shira Oviday, our Bloomberg Opinion columnist for all things related to the world of technology. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.